It's so good to be back, and I had to come back sick. That was the way it worked. <coughs> the Lord knows exactly what you need to not hear today. <coughs> We're going to be in John chapter 2. I try to plan all my diseases around Sunday. <laughs> but this one just lingered all week, so I still, still can't talk. But if you can understand me, we'll let the Lord do the work, okay? So... <coughs> Let's pray real quick. Father, we thank you so much for your word. It's always profound and beautiful. And uh, today we see the glory of Christ in a fresh way. And we just ask you to bless our time in the words of John's gospel, Lord. And we just pray you give us ears to hear in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> All right. Well, today in John's gospel, we're come to this place where we really get our first, um, in this gospel, our first close-up look at the spiritual condition of Israel at the time of Jesus. It's not a good condition. It's tragically sad, actually. Sad seems to be the norm for human life, right? Human beings. It's, it's only the few who really hunger to know God and serve Him faithfully. Now, religion is another matter. There's a lot of religion in the world and in Jesus' time the Jewish people were very religious overall. One could say religious fervor <clears throat> was quite strong but godliness itself was rare because in part there were so few godly people in leadership. There was so little being modeled for the population. The people they looked to as the religious leaders were either corrupt or vain spiritually proud. Now John the Baptist comes along and he's a breath of fresh air. He operated outside the normal religious structures of Israel and we're never told that he went to synagogue or even attended feasts at the temple. We're never told that about him. He may have done that but we don't see it in the Bible. He appears to have lived entirely a separated life. I cough when I cough. Okay. <clears throat> But being religious, it's kind of a man-made thing. Being religious is uh, you're taking whatever either God has revealed and changing it, uh, tapping it down to your level that makes you comfortable and leaving out what you don't like, or it's just something people made up. So religion is a man-made thing. But um, <clears throat> in the first century, Israel was very religious it was sort of rooted in what God had done with them as a people, but there was so much they just layered on top of it that it was lost. Real faith in God was lost. So we can learn a lot by thinking about religious Israel because all through the ages, churches encounter exactly the same sort of problem. Little churches do, little churches like ours, or big denominations, it doesn't matter. They all encounter these same problems. In the news, if you follow religious news at all, <coughs> huge denominations are going through great divides right now. Church of England is divided, globally divided. The Methodist Church is dividing. All kinds of things are happening. And that's because these same problems keep showing up. Formality instead of faith. Innovation instead of obedience. Confusing political goals with God's purposes. That's always happening. Corrupt religious leaders serving themselves instead of serving God's people. That is always happening. So these things come about again and again and again. But sometimes there's a great move of God into the world where a large number of people want to serve the Lord faithfully. They repent of their sins. They follow hard after the Lord, even laying down their lives for the work of the Lord. 
<coughs> we see this around the world today in different places, not so much here in America, just a little bit, but it still goes on in other places. But in the past, in our country, there have been great moves of God's Spirit. The Great Awakening in the 1740s was one example of that, but it only lasted a few years. During the Civil War, there were great uh, <coughs> revivals in the camps of both armies, and that kind of fed into about 20 years later another great revival that happened in America. So it does happen here, but it's rare as well. But we should pay attention to what Jesus encountered with the religious life of Israel because we live in similar times where religion is man-made and man-focused and the key things, the most important things, are sort of put on the shelf or left aside. So, <clears throat> John is giving us a heads up about the spiritual condition of Israel in his prologue. Now we've looked at the prologue in the past, chapter 1, verse 9 through 11. He says, there was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. He came to his own and those who were his own did not receive him. So when Christ came into the world, John says, his own people didn't receive him. We talked about that when we were studying chapter 1. Now, as we move along in chapter 1 and work into chapter 2, we've met several men who are sold out for the Lord, passionately interested in what God is doing, men who followed the ministry of John the Baptist and even gave their time and resources to help encourage him and be a part of what he was doing as much as they could. And... Um, we also saw in chapter 1 a delegation of priests and Levites that came to interview John the Baptist. Remember that? And uh, they wanted to know who he was, who he thought he was. And as a prophet, again, he was separate from the ministry of the temple, separate from the Pharisees or any of those people. He didn't have any connections to the religious structures of Israel. He was operating on his own. So they come to him and in chapter 1 verse 22 they say, who are you? What do you say about yourself? And remember, what did John say? I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness to make straight the way of the Lord. The Lord is coming and I'm smoothing the path out for him. That's my job. So uh, he said one greater than him was coming. So the delegation, they don't come across in that passage as particularly uh, antagonistic towards him. They ask questions. They're gathering information about this well-known and highly regarded preacher, but they don't sound particularly negative. <clears throat> now after this, in the narrative, in fact the next day, Jesus shows up. After that delegation leaves, Jesus shows up the next day and starts collecting disciples for himself. These are rough men, but seeking the Lord. Each of them is pursuing God, so there were people like that. And Jesus is identifying them, bringing them on board. They want to be part of what God is doing. All that's in chapter 1. Then we get to chapter 2. And Jesus and his brand new disciples attend a wedding in Cana, right? And Jesus does his first miracle there, his first sign. And that closes out the first week of Jesus' ministry. But things are about to change, and they're going to change because Jesus is going to make it happen. He's going to do something very dramatic. He's going to the temple, which is the heart and the center of the faith of Israel. And now he's been to the temple, of course, before, um, his, probably his whole life. When he was 12, Luke tells us that he was, his parents couldn't figure out where he was, and he was actually sitting with the big theologians in the temple um, 
impressing them with his questions and the way he dealt with the scriptures as they were discussing them. So he was a little 12 year old prodigy according to them and their minds. They found him impressive. So for all of Jesus' life um, up until his baptism and his anointing, he had come to Jerusalem but he'd always come there as a pilgrim just as one of many people coming to worship there with his family and um, as a grown man. So obviously he used his time well when he came but he, he never came to cause a stir. He never done that before. He came to worship. But that's going to change now. He's going to make it a little difficult for those that run the temple. And he knows what goes on there. He's seen it his whole life. He's observed it. It became, the, the temple became a money making operation. And that became more important than worship. So they placed worship on a low priority list. The leaders of Israel had their priorities upside down, just as we often see today in Christianity. <clears throat> but I have to mention verse 12 first. So John drops a little note before Jesus goes to the temple and after the wedding. So this is the first week of his ministry is passed. That was the wedding, ended up with the wedding. And then he's good. It's still a few days before Passover and he wants to go to the temple when many, many people are there. So he waits till Passover. So what do they do? Verse 12, they go to Capernaum. After this, he went down to Capernaum and he and his mother and his brothers and his disciples. And they stayed there for a few days. Now we're not told why he did this except that we know that Capernaum will become later his home base. So Nazareth is kind of off the beaten track. Capernaum's in a high population area. Major roads go through there. So as he's starting his ministry, he's eventually going to put his headquarters, if you want to use that language, in Capernaum up there in Galilee. So um, that's probably what they're doing is scoping it out for that because he's just starting. So um, so this is right before Passover, so that when Passover comes, Jesus goes to the temple. What's he going to do there? He's going to cleanse the temple. Now, we often think of this moment, most of you know, Jesus came and threw the money changers' tables over and had a whip of cords and all that stuff. Most of us think of this in a movie sort of way. And every Jesus movie I've ever seen, Jesus comes into the temple and he sees what's going on. It's like the first time he's ever seen it. And, and, he, and he gets really mad. <clears throat> and he starts throwing the tables over and doing all that kind of stuff. I don't think that's the way it happened. Um, he's been there many times. This has been like that for decades. And he, it's always been that way. So it's a plan. He's planning to go there and make a scene, if you will. He's, it's not like a spontaneous reaction. Uh, it's, it's, I think it's quite intentional. He had righteous indignation. I think he was genuinely angry, but he's expressing it openly when probably in years past, he may have discussed it with people. He may have even discussed it with people in leadership there, but they never did anything about it. So he's going to do something about it. This is a dramatic moment. So verse 13, <clears throat> the Passover of the Jews was near. Jesus went up to Jerusalem and he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers seated at their tables. So the word found there in verse 14, he found those selling oxen and sheep. Th that word found is a word, it, the Greek word is just like our English word. It can mean different things, right? It can mean, well, I went into the woods and I found uh, somebody's backpack there. I, it was totally unexpected. It could also mean you go somewhere and 
you're, you're, it could mean you're searching for something, can mean that as well, or it could just mean you came across something and that's the situation where it was, right? So it can be any of those kind of things. I think the meaning here leans more towards the intentionality. He went in there, he was planning to go there, he was searching for this scenario, and there it was. So it was a search and find, more than just, oh, look what's going on in the temple today. So it's that kind of an idea. Like I said, he knew his whole life what goes on there. So he's being very deliberate in what's going on. So he didn't just discover this. My goodness, wicked men have taken over the temple. He's known about it. He's going there to clean house. That's his job. That's his purpose. And he's making a statement. This is the beginning of his ministry. He's walking into the temple, the heart of Israel. And he's going to make a statement. So let's talk about when this happened because John clearly places this in basically week two of Jesus' official ministry, right? But if you've read all the other gospels and seen all the Jesus movies, generally um, the other gospels all record that Jesus cleansed the temple on Palm Sunday, the day he rode the donkey into Jerusalem and was hailed as the Messiah by crowds waving palm branches. So that's the beginning of the Passion Week. John records it as the beginning of his entire ministry. So, wow, what's going on? Is that an error in the Bible? Is that an inconsistency? Is it a contradiction? Is there a mistake? I think I've lost my faith. <laughs> no, he just does it twice. It's, it's not really complicated. He does it two times. And John's telling you the first time he did it, and we don't even know if he went to the Passover the second year after that, but the year after that, he's going to go for the Passion Week. So, um, so it's several years away when he goes in on Palm Sunday and does the same thing. But he's doing it two times. So the other, in fact, the other Gospels have Jesus saying different words completely than what he had, when John has him saying it was a different day. And not only that, but they all, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all agree on basically the words that he said there. Um, but that's not what he says here. Mark, for example, who has the most detail actually of, of this particular event in the Passion Week cleansing of the temple Jesus says is it not written my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations but you have made it a robber's den so that's a very blistering attack on them really important phrase there when he says the house is a prayer for all nations I'll explain that in a minute but John records totally different words um, including the phrase my father's house that is in John's gospel, not in the other gospels. Take these things away and stop making my father's house a place of business. That's what he says here in John chapter 2. So it happened twice, a different time, according to both John and the other gospels, and different language, different things he says the first time and the second time he does it. So let's talk about what's actually going on here. Obviously, sacrifices have to be made in the temple according to Mosaic law. Uh, the temple was for that very purpose. But the law did not allow sacrificial animals to be sold in the temple. But that law was ignored. Now, you have to think about, this is not a real simple structure like the tabernacle in the Old Testament or even Solomon's temple. After the Babylonian captivity, you know, they destroyed the temple. They came back. They rebuilt a really simple structure to serve that purpose. But um, before Jesus was born, Herod the Great started working on one of the ancient wonders of the world, one of the truly most magnificent buildings in the ancient world. So Herod was not a Jew, but he ruled over Israel. 
and he wanted them, he, he was a builder. Anybody been to Israel, you see Herod built this, Herod built that. He was a builder, he was a fanatical builder. He wanted to build the temple of all time. They were still working on it in Jesus' day. They'd been working on it for half a century, basically. But it was getting close to completion, but it wasn't done yet. So they had a long way to go. <clears throat> so um, he's coming into a very large, beautiful, still under construction work. But when he entered the east gate of Herod's temple, there's a huge court area with porticos and the Roman style and all that kind of stuff. Uh, that's called the court of the Gentiles. If you were a Gentile that came to worship the true God of Israel, you could not go beyond that court. It was a large area, but you had to stay there. And that's where you prayed. That's where you um, sought the Lord. You know, you, that's as close as you could come. Then there's a sort of a half wall. And beyond that was another court called the court of the men. So, uh, I'm sorry. You go, the, the next court's the court of the women. Gentiles, women. And then, the, the, so Jewish women could go past that barricade and be in this next court area. Then the Jewish men would go past this ex, another half wall sort of barricade thing with gates, gates and openings in it. And that's where the men would go. They would actually go up some steps from the women's court and be in that third inner court. So Gentiles, Jewish women and men, Jewish men, and then the men couldn't go into the next level which is where the priests would be right so you had to be a priest or a Levite to go into the next level so this is a multi-tiered court system and then of course in the holy place in the holy of holies only priests doing actual temple work could go inside those buildings and the holiest the holiest place the holy of holies only a high priest could go in there only once a year so it's a it's a way of saying God is so holy you are sinful you need to approach me through sacrifice because that, that your sin problem hasn't been completely resolved yet. That's why when Jesus died on the cross, the, the great veil in the temple that separates everybody from God is, was torn in two. Because we have access to God directly through Christ. That's why I'm not a priest. We don't have priests anymore. We don't need a priest. Jesus is our priest. He's the one mediator, one mediator between God and man, Paul says in 1 Timothy. So, um, but this was a priestly system that God set up in the Old Testament. So um, where do they set up this selling marketplace thing? In the court of the Gentiles. So Gentiles actually come and in the first century there was a lot of Gentile interest in the living God of Israel. Jews were spread all over the Roman Empire. People were attracted to a moral God. Pagan gods aren't moral. They don't really care about right and wrong. In fact, their own behavior is immoral. So, um, a lot of people were attracted to the God of Israel. And Gentiles would come. But, going to the temple, they had to stay in the Gentile court, right? That's where they put this marketplace. Now, what would they do? This is what made it, so for one thing it was wrong just to do that. But sacrifices had to be pure, spotless. God always said to bring your best. So they would have priests inspecting the animals you brought. And if you were a Gentile coming from another country and you were traveling to there for, to make a pilgrimage, to, you didn't bring animals with you, you purchased them there. So they had this marketplace. If you brought your own, there was a fairly strong possibility somebody, a priest would look at your sheep or your goat or your doves or whatever and say, oh, you know, there's a little pimple on this guy and he's not 
really good enough to be offered up as a sacrifice. But we've got, a, we've got some that are good enough over here for sale. And that's kind of how this operation worked. And it's talked about outside the Bible. The Bible isn't the only place that discusses this going on. So um, that's what was going on. So you had to pay. Josephus, who was a Jewish, not a Christian, a Jewish historian of the first century, a contemporary of the Apostle Paul, he says that Anas, the high priest, during Jesus' time was a great hoarder of money. That's what he said about him. And his sons, he said, had, this is a quote, had bazaars set up in the court of the Gentiles for the purpose of money changing and the purchase of sacrificial animals. So that there's a Jewish source talking about this going on. And the prices to buy animals there or for exchanging money there were exorbitant. It was like buying a bottle of water at Disneyland. I mean, <laughs> way beyond what anybody should have to pay. In fact, after Jesus' time, a couple decades after, and right before the destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans, in fact, just a few years before that, there was kind of an internal rebellion against the system in Israel, and people were so aggravated with the way the temple thing was corrupted and using people and taking their money that they actually kind of rose up against that, and they... Um, they changed it, you know, so they had some reformers come in and, and redo it. And Gamaliel, who was one of the great um, rabbis of the day, his son became one of the reformers of the temple. And he reduced the price of doves by 99% to make it what it should be. That's how much they were making book off the, um, the people there, you know. So um, then there's the money changer thing too. Jews were all required once a year to bring a half shekel to support the temple ministry there. That was part of their Jewish obligation as faithful Jews. People from coming out of town, well, they actually did multiple things with this money changer thing, but the main thing was um, you're, you're bringing foreign money. What's on, what's on the coin of foreign money? Gods or often the emperor who is worshiped as a god. You can't bring a coin like that into God's holy house. You, you can exchange it for local shekels though. Now there's a fee. There's a fee for this exchange. So um, that was another way that Enos and his sons and the corrupt priests make a lot of money on people. Um, very common. Very common. That's why Jesus said in Mark's gospel, my house shall be called a house of prayer for the nations not a, don't, you've made it a robber's den. They actually are cheating people. So, you know, so the, the, the temple wasn't there to make a profit. That's not what God put it there for. That place was established for sinful men to approach him. All men, all nations. And so to put that in the court of the Gentiles when pagans were People that had a pagan background were coming to find out and worship the true God and hear about him. There's a lot of teaching going on in the court of the Gentiles because it's a large area. Jesus usually taught there. They're there to worship and you're bilking them of their money. One, one uh, commentator, he kind of tried to describe the scene there. The court of the Gentiles, he said, the place of prayer for all nations smelled of a barnyard sounded like a cattle market filled with noise and din and it was the scene of many a swindle. Now I don't know about you but when I walk into a church and all they care about is getting my money 
I know what's going on there. I know what's happening there. And when you see ministers living in lavish palaces, lavish palaces, wanting private planes and jets and all this kind of stuff, for the ministry of course, but um, living like kings literally, you know what you're dealing with there. It's the same thing was going on then. Same thing was going on there. The authorities had destroyed the spiritual purpose of the temple and making money off the severe, I mean the, the, the sincere faith of the saints. They were making money off the faith of the saints. Good thing that doesn't happen today. <laughs> <laughs> and it does. You know, there's uh, con artists love to use religion. They love Christianity because Christians are really gullible. And um, they, they can if they present themselves as a con artist can do, as a super confident believer, especially a believer that has a relationship with God that's different from yours because God talks to them personally all the time and he doesn't do that for you. So they know, they're, they're more intimate and then they promise you things, riches or health or this or that. If you give money to them, you know how that operation works. It's the same principle here. Um, it's, it's just manipulative. So the high priest family was using the temple to gain vast wealth and that's no different than churches and ministries who make big bucks selling merchandise or promising people things they have no right to promise if you give money to them. It's a scam. And you know what? Jesus hates scams. He hates scams. What could be worse than using God who is gracious and merciful and offers salvation freely to make money off people. How, how can anyone do that? So Jesus absolutely hates that. So to a righteous man that would be an unthinkable crime. So let's read John's account here verse 15. This is what Jesus did the first time he cleansed the temple. He made a scourge of cords that also wasn't mentioned later in Matthew, Mark or Luke. He didn't do that the second time but this time he did. Now you have to you have to make a scourge. It's called a flagellion. It's a, you got to sit there and knit some things together. I'm sure there was a lot of um, leather thongs around from the animals and taking care of animals and moving stuff around. So he kind of had to put this together, this thing, this uh, scourge, if you will. And he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. So it doesn't necessarily mean he was whipping human beings. There was animals he was driving out as well. And to those who were selling the doves, he said, take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. And then it says in verse 17, his disciples remembered that it was written. So even in that moment, they remembered Psalm 69 verse 9. Zeal for your house will consume me. That came to their mind. Boy, he's zealous. Wow. And Jesus obviously anticipated resistance because we're talking about money. There's going to be resistance, right? That's why he made the scourge of cords. So he fashioned this flagellion, which is just a simple multi-tethered kind of whip thing. <clears throat> now notice in verse 17, his disciples were there because they're seeing what he's doing and they've got a response to it. But are they helping? Doesn't say that. He's doing this himself. They're just watching what's going on. He's acting alone. So it's not a riot. It's not a plan. Come on guys, we're going to go mess this. No, it wasn't that at all. Jesus is asserting his authority 
as the Messiah, as the Son of God in the temple. And he's not asking them to be part of it at all. He made the, Peter, make a whip of cords and go whip those. No, he didn't do that. He did it, all of it. He's asserting himself, his authority. His father's honor was impugned by the wickedness of men. His dwelling place was defiled by greed and misuse and selfish motives. So he takes it on alone himself. Now what's really interesting to me about this cleansing of the temple, which is really different than the second temple cleansing years later, is Jesus here is not widely known. Okay, this is kind of, he's kind of new in terms of public notice, right? John the Baptist is the well, most well-known religious figure in Israel. Maybe the high priest and John the Baptist. But John the Baptist is the one that people are talking about all the time. When Jesus cleanses the temple on Palm Sunday of the Passion Week, the second time, everybody knows who he is. He's been healing people and doing all these amazing things for three years. Everybody was waiting for him. Jesus is even hailed by the crowd as the Messiah on that day. Hosanna to the son of David. They're all ready. They've got palm branches. He shows up and they're already, they're ready for him. He just wrote, raised a man from the dead down the road in Bethany a week, just days before. So they're waiting for the Messiah to come. Not this time. Not this time. In John chapter 2, it's a totally different situation. John chapter 2 is the first shot across the bow. You know what that means when you shoot across the bow? You're trying to stop a ship out in the ocean. You fire a shot before it saying, we could hit you. So you sh shoot a shot across the bow and that says, stop or turn around or whatever. Let us board you. That kind of, that's what he's doing here. You are wrong. I'm telling you now. You need to change this. This stuff has to go. The days of making money off God's people are over. That's what he's saying. So it's his introduction to the nation. The very heart of the nation. Its center. The great temple. How this plays out is pretty interesting. And again it raises a lot of questions. We saw the turning of the water into wine. Two weeks ago in John chapter 2. The first half of John chapter 2. Um. When we talked about that, we, we mentioned that John doesn't give a lot of details. Jesus has this conversation with his mother, and it's like two lines, and you're going, well, what else did they say? Because it's a really interesting conversation. Same thing here. This is really brief, this exchange that he has with the temple authorities. And John gives us just enough to make his point. See, I always want to know more. Tell me, out, tell me the whole conversation. But he doesn't give that. But he, he tells us what you need to know. The main thing. But it brings up a lot of questions in my mind. Because it's kind of shocking. Why isn't Jesus arrested? Or why doesn't a bunch of big burly guys grab him? And stop him from doing that? I mean money's at stake. That's when people get angry. Instead the leaders ask a question. And why do they ask the question that they ask? And what do they know about Jesus already? That's what interests me. And we don't know the answer to all those questions. So we'll find out when we get to heaven. Peter, just what did the, <laughs> what did the religious leaders in the temple know about Jesus? So verse 18 is the perfect example of a, a full conversation that's boiled down to its very essence. And the main thing that John wants you to hear is in verse 18. Okay, that's why he's writing this. So the Jews said to him, 
What sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? There's our word. Now we've been talking in John's gospel about this word. Sign, right? Chapter 2 through 11 is called often the book of signs. Because those are the, that's the place where John writes these seven major signs that Jesus does that shows that he's the Messiah. So we're just in the beginning of that. The first sign was turning water into wine. That was a quiet sign. In fact, nobody really even at the wedding knew it happened except the servants that saw it happen and the disciples. That's about it. So they're asking for a sign now. What sign do you show us as your authority? So Jesus is not recognized as any kind of a leader in Israel. But here's my question. Is it possible that they know who he is? That they actually do know who he is? I don't mean who he really is, but they know Jesus of Nazareth, that they're aware of his personhood. It's possible. So go back 20 years maybe before this. Jesus is 12 years old. And he, what we know, this is all we know. He's sitting with the great theologians and he's impressing them with his knowledge and understanding and interpretation of scripture. So um, what happened from the time he was 12 to this day in terms of Jesus' relationship with people at the temple. If he was such a marvel at 12, did his parents bring him back to the temple the next year when he was 13 or 14 and 15? And, and did he go to those same meetings and interact with, theologically with people? That's possible. We're never told that. But that, why would he not? Unless mom said, last time we lost track of you and you were sitting with the theologians. You're not doing that anymore. But let's say he was 20 and he came later with his family and, and was there and he could sit with the theologians by himself. But I'm just saying that uh, it's, it's reasonable to think they knew who he was. He was this bright kid, right? In fact, Luke's gospel, after it tells that story about Jesus in the temple as a child, it actually talks about his teenage years. In Luke chapter 2 verse 52 it says Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature. He grew two inches too. <laughs> and in favor with God and men. In favor with God and men. That's a general statement. But when it says men that could include not only his community but the local rabbis. The local Levites that were the teachers of the law. The people that lived in Nazareth could have included them. But it's possible it also included people that were pretty well placed in Jerusalem that had met him as a child and maybe in a series of years after that whenever they were in town for the feast Jesus would connect with those people but as, as a man they would have just seen him as a, a, a godly man a godly young man so they might have had those connections we just aren't told I kind of think that's probably the case though so same thing is why he's not surprised oh my gosh they're selling animals in the court of the Gentiles. No he'd seen that all his life. The same way he probably knew these people a little bit and they probably were fairly impressed with him. So that might explain why he's not arrested as a kook for doing this and what he's saying is true of what they're doing. You know they've made the father's house. Now saying my father's house that's a little shocking but I'm not sure they're paying that much attention to that yet but um, anyway I'm just thinking that way. So John doesn't want us to know all those details. He wants us to know this important thing. What's the important thing? What sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? And Jesus gives the weirdest answer. 
It's, it's, it's a mashal, what they called a mashal in those days, a riddle. It's kind of an enigmatic saying, something that, huh? Makes you go, huh? Verse 19, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Uh, that, that would be a sign. <laughs> now, he could have said, destroy this temple in three days I would raise it up, like pointing to himself, the temple. Isn't it interesting that the temple in Jerusalem for all those centuries was the place where God dwelt among his people? Where does God dwell more than in that building? Well, in Christ, of course. Now, I don't know if he pointed to himself, but it's possible that he did. But um, that's a pretty amazing statement. It's a strange thing to say, to say, and it would be so, it was so impactful that that was his answer to the authority question. What sign do you do to show us that you have authority, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. That it, it was remembered years later. It was remembered at Jesus' trial. It was remembered when Jesus was being crucified. In fact, Jesus' words here are twisted by his enemies much later and used against him at his trial. Mark chapter 14, verse 57, part of the trial of Jesus some stood up and began to give false testimony against him saying, we heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands and in three days I will build another temple made without hands. Now is that what he said? No, but it's sort of close. I mean, he did say something like it, but that's not what he said. So now that could be a really bad memory or they're perverting what he said to bring him to death, right? And then when Jesus is hanging on the cross, they're mocking him, hurling abuse at him. And Mark chapter 15, verse 29, those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads <laughs> and saying, ha, you who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So they remembered that. What's so interesting about that is Mark never tells the story of when Jesus said that, nor does Matthew, nor does Luke. Only John tells where that saying even came from. It just kind of out of the blue when it gets to Mark and they're saying that. Or if you just had Mark's gospel, you'd go, well, what does that mean? Where did they get that? Did Jesus say that? So John was written later than those other gospels, but here he's actually telling the, the source of that accusation. It's really interesting how the gospels interplay with each other right there because uh, John would have known what the other gospel writers said. So um, back to the saying itself. It's a direct, though I would say, enigmatic, a riddly sort of prophecy of Jesus about what? What is destroy this temple in three days? I'll raise it up. It's about his resurrection. So the Jews answer him and say, verse 20, it took 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days? Verse 21, but he was speaking of the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. Now John was one of these disciples, so he is telling what they remembered at the time and probably talked about. Now these verses, verse 20 through 23, are, um, they're priceless. 20, 20 through 22, I'm sorry. They're priceless to Christian theology and you should learn those verses. I don't mean you have to memorize them necessarily but you should be aware of them. There's three important things in those verses. 
verse 20, 21, and 22. The first thing you should know is that it's absolutely clear that Jesus is talking about the resurrection of his body. It was a bodily resurrection. There are cults, religious cults that claim to be biblical, both in ancient times and in modern times today that say Jesus did not rise bodily from from the dead. Now these are people that say they believe the Bible. Jehovah's Witnesses would be one good example. Next time they knock on your door say, did Jesus rise from the dead in his body? And they would say, no, 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 he was spirit. And then you could take him to John chapter two and say, hmm, what, what about this? <laughs> he was speaking of the temple of his body. Then they'll have some kind of weird explanation. But, but that's, that's an important uh, proof of his bodily resurrection. Of course, all the descriptions of the resurrection in the gospels are proof as well. But that's just an extra special one right there. Second thing, and we can add these verses to verse 19 and see plainly that Jesus, who's going to raise him from the dead? I will raise it up. I will raise it up. But he's dead. Yeah, but he's God. So yeah, the human body Jesus was killed, but he's God. And so he raises himself from the dead. That's what he's saying. I will raise it up. That's really important too about the divinity of Christ. He's God. Now there's another thing. But there's the third thing. <clears throat> so last time I was with you we talked about John using what I call bookends uh, as a literary device. So he has something at the beginning of something and something at the end of something that are related to each other and there's all this substance in between of them. So we talked about that with regard to the signs. Remember that? The book of signs? And the seven miracles that point to Jesus' divinity. We said the first sign takes place on a joyous occasion at a wedding. The last sign in chapter 11 of John takes place at a funeral. Right before Jesus is going to be put to death. And Jesus weeps there. So one is he's making wine the very symbol of joy. And, and the, the, the last sign he's raising a man from the dead. That's, that's actually the sign. But he weeps over his death. And that that relates to that idea. So those are the bookends. Now that's just one example of bookends in John's gospel. There's two even more important examples. And the way he structures it. Okay that's what I'm talking about. The way he's writing the gospel. There's two things at the beginning of John's gospel. That relate to two things at the end of John's gospel. That are very intentional. I'm doing the best I can Lord. (laughs) The first thing. Is that Jesus is God. The second thing. Is that Jesus did rise bodily from the dead. You can't come away from John's gospel. Without understanding. That those are the two great claims. That you are to believe. Jesus is God. And God raised him bodily from the dead. Those are the two great things. That Jesus is God is stated clearly in the very first verse of this gospel. In the beginning was the word, the logos. And the word was with God and the word was God. Right? The very first thing. That's the first bookend. When you get to the very end of the gospel. Before the epilogue in chapter 21. The end of chapter 20 which is the the true end if you will. Structurally of the gospel. Thomas doubter finally meets Jesus in person the risen Christ and he touches his wounds and all of that and what does he say 
John 20, 28, he, he, he says to Jesus, as he said to him, my Lord and my God. That's the other bookend. So the first thing you, you're told by John is that Jesus is God, with God and was God. And at the end of the gospel, the last thing you're told is, here's a guy worshiping Jesus as God. That's what you should be doing too. The bookends. The other thing is the bodily resurrection of Jesus, right? So the first bookend on that topic, the first mention of that is right here. In John chapter 2 when Jesus says destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. That's why he tells this cleansing of the temple story instead of the other one like the other gospels do, the second cleansing. He does it because this is a bookend for his gospel as well. He wants to already to plant in your mind the resurrection of Jesus. So he says that line and then his disciples remember that that he said that because after he was raised from the dead. So he's already telling you what's going to happen. It's not going to be a surprise when you get there to the resurrection. And then chapter um, uh, 20 is the, all about the resurrection of Jesus, right? So you've got those bookends there. Those are the things John wants you to know. I have a lot of interesting things I want to know, but those are the things he wants you to know. And what he wants you to know is way more important than what I want to know, okay? So what's all this about? It's about this. Jesus came to save us from us. He came, as, came to save us from ourselves and from man-made religion that, will, that dupes us and keeps us away from God. That's why he came. Religion does not save people. You knew that, right? Religion does not save people. We started this morning talking about people who seek God for God. Who, who repent of their sins and follow hard after the Lord. That's what salvation is. That's what it looks like. Human beings are naturally, because we're fallen creatures, estranged from God. That's our natural, we're born estranged from God. We love sin. We could be really religious and love sin. The Pharisees were super religious. I don't break the commandments. I just cheat people out of their money. <laughs> You can be religious and need a savior and you can be an atheist and need a savior but everybody needs a savior. Religion doesn't save. God became a man to redeem us from his judgment on sin and sinners. And by doing that he sets us free. How do we know it worked? How do we know he really paid for our sins? He rose from the dead. Nobody else has ever done that. He came back from the dead. So he brings us eternal life. That's how we know. And that, those two great things, that Jesus is God and that he rose bodily from the dead, that puts a divine claim on us to believe and to bend our knees to him as our Lord. He's our savior and our Lord. We can look at religious Israel and compare it with our own life is God just a being who exists to us, who's there to give us things and protect us from harm and provide some sort of comfort in the daily afflictions and pains of life? Is that what it's all about? Is that who God is? Or is everything really about him? Because he is God. He's the creator of all things. And he's a moral God who gave us commandments which we break. Is it really about that? Of course it is. 
Logic 101. God, the universe is about God. He made it. He's bigger than it. He's eternal. He made us. We're accountable to him. You would think everyone would just get that, but no, because we're fallen. So we use religion as a way to stay away from God or deny religion all, its, all, all, all alone. You know, we just reject it. Okay. God is everything. That's my topic. <laughs> Two more minutes. John's not quite done in chapter 2. <clears throat> when the temple authorities asked for a sign, Jesus gave them his riddle answer about the grand sign that was coming years away, right? Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Jesus did not leave after cleansing the temple on this first Passover that he does this act, this presentation of himself. He stayed for the whole feast. We don't know everything he did, but if it's like all the other times he was in Jerusalem, he taught in the porticos and the court of the Gentiles, and he healed people. And that generated a lot of interest in him, right? People played, in fact, the word John uses, I'm going to show you here, people paid very close attention to his healing miracles. They were actually blown away by them. John the Baptist never did anything like that. He didn't do any miracles. There's no miracles recorded about John the Baptist. But people went to him by the droves. He was the greatest man in Israel until now. So Jesus is going to eclipse the fame of John the Baptist. That's why John said he must increase and I must decrease, right? But the apostle John makes a really informative comment about this interest in Jesus. So look at verse 23. Now he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast so he stayed. Many believed in his name observing his signs. There's, the, there's our word. Obs- he did do signs there. We're just not told what they are but if, if it's typical of him it would be healing. Observing the signs. Signs is John's word for miracle. He never uses the word miracle. He always uses the word signs because they point to who Jesus is. Verse 24. But Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them for he knew all men and because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man for he himself knew what was in man. Wow that's quite a statement. So when people saw these signs what does he say? They believed in his name. Signs or miracles. I mean that would definitely make you think there's somebody special. What did they believe about him? We don't know. I'm sure they believed he was at least a prophet Did some people believe he was the Messiah? Probably, based on this. But what sort of faith do they have? Paying close attention to his miracles. When it says observing his signs in verse 23, that word observing is the word we talked about earlier in the gospel, which is not just seeing them, but it's like an, a scrutinizing, an, an intent. They're really paying attention to what's going on there. That guy really was crippled for life and he's walking. That man was blind. We've seen him forever. He's blind and he can see. You know, those kind of things. So they paid attention and they believed in him, but he did not believe in them. The word in verse 24, most translations say he didn't entrust himself 
or trust them and trust himself. It's exactly the same word as believe. That word means both things but in, in Greek. But it's, it, so you could say it easily. Um, they believed, but he wasn't believing in them. He wasn't putting his faith in them. Because whatever their level of faith was, it wasn't yet what it needed to be. Jesus is very aware of people having religious enthusiasm that is not true faith. That is not a commitment to him. Miracles always wow people, right? But they don't often create genuine faith. Passing through the Red Sea was a pretty wonderful personal experience for a couple million people. And those same people were worshiping a golden calf just a little bit later. (laughs) Didn't really affect their life in any meaningful way. So at this point, many may not be leaving their man-made or their own personal religion that they have, their man-centered faith. They're just adding Jesus to it. Always be careful of that. He's got to be first. You don't add Jesus into your life. He becomes your life. He becomes the center of your life. You just can't add him. He's got to be everything. And in the coming chapters of John's gospel, we're going to see this man-centered faith in Jesus. People that do follow him pitted against real saving faith. You're going to see it over and over again in the next chapters. It's a battle, a spiritual battle. And that battle will first be seen in the heart of one of the most important men in Israel. A member of the great council, the Sanhedrin. One of the 70 that rules Israel. And his name is Nicodemus. And we'll meet him next Sunday. (laughs) All right, chapter 3. Let's pray. Lord, we ask for your grace to spare us from a man-centered faith. Turn our hearts to you. To love and honor you as you deserve. That is our salvation. But you have to awaken our hearts, Lord. So we ask you, by your own sovereign grace, to do that very thing. Do that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.